Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. This is episode 11. Don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button. Give us a five-star rating. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this one. Last week, we got into some, uh, some deep territory, deep water in the stories, and I think this is going to be a continuation of that. And with that, here's Chuck Stead. Yep, this is uh, this next one is the one I've been avoiding thinking about. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh, no. I'm getting worried already. Okay, seatbelts oh, well. on. So, this one is called Heebie Jeebie Goes Camping. Holda, Heebie Jeebie's wife, was a German woman. Long ago, she shut the door on her past. Only once did Walt hear her speak a language other than English before World War I, when Walt was a toddler, and Mal was a strapping young boy, Holda spoke of a relative in the Kaiser's army. She told fairy tales from the old country. She even knew a Yiddish folk song. But all that was denied with the First World War. Anti-German sentiment ran high. Holda let it all slip away. She became a stead and remained one for the rest of her time. She married John, whose mother, Eliza, had been deserted years earlier when John was just a boy. Eliza Stead and her eight-year-old son struggled, and by the time he was a pre-adolescent, a distant relative of Eliza's took them in. His name was Walter Garrison, and was believed to be of the Havistraw Garrisons. He helped them until young John could support himself. Eliza never forgot this Walter Garrison, who was remembered for being a quiet, regular man. When John married Holda, they lived for a time in Spring Valley and then moved back to Ramapo, where he got a job at the ironworks. They had four boys, four girls, and another boy. One of the girls, Betty, had died of a brain tumor. It was a long, drawn-out thing. This was an episode that burned its memory into the older children. Many years later, Uncle Mal would mist up recalling the loss of Betty. Holda's fourth boy was named by request of Eliza after the Walter Garrison from the century before. And like his namesake, this new Walter Garrison, who would become my dad, grew into a quiet, regular man. Some of these things I learned from Holda after Heebie-Jeebie moved out. He had gotten sick. It was hard to know just what ailed him. He walked around the house talking to phantoms and leaving lit cigars burning on the edge of wooden tables. Once he left the front porch and was found halfway over the cyclone throughway fence, his hands stuck on the wire points. Walt got him down and scolded him for this. He explained he was trying to see where the big road went. Used to be, you, you could just walk down to the river, uh, for, right from our porch. He was telling Walt and Grandma as they pressed band-aids into his palms. Now they got a big damn road in the way, all those car-driving people. Don't take no time to do nothing. There's a river. They don't know a thing about the river. Don't knowing about a thing can, can make it go away. Grandma Stead came to Tessie in the kitchen of the house that she had raised her own family in. They sat at the chrome formica table. Tessie poured them coffee. Grandma was talking about how hard it was for her to keep an eye on heebie-jeebie. Tessie lit a Chesterfield King. She shook the match out with long sweeps of her forearm, as opposed to Walt, who shook his matches with a short ringing of the hand. When Tessie lit a cigarette with a cup of coffee in the works, she was in for listening. 
Grandma told about Heebie-Jeebie being careless with matches, about him messing himself in the bed, about the sudden fighting in a dream. Tessie listened. Tessie would remember this is the only time that Grandma Holda actually asked for help. She asked that they do something with Heebie-Jeebie. I was told he was going to a home, but I thought we already lived in one. I was told he was sick, but he seemed fine to me. He was slipping in and out of different times of his life. Yes, that was true. He and I were sitting in the living room in the house on First Street. Suddenly, Hebe turned to me and shouted, Answer your mother, boy! I was stunned. She was not at home. I went to the door of the living room and I shouted, What? When she didn't answer, he looked at me and said, Isn't that just like a woman? Quite early one morning, Grandma Holda packed a suitcase for heebie-jeebie. My sister Terry, always very curious as to what the elders were up to, took me out to the front porch and pointed to the big car with the two men stepping out of it. She said, those were the men that take old people away. Maybe, she said, Grandpa has gone crazy. I said nothing. The men both smiled at me through the screen. Tessie came out onto the porch and moved Terry and me out of the way. The three of us stood and watched Walt and Grandma Holda escort Heebie-Jeebie out to the two men who were waiting for him. Then Walt, he walked Holda back up the steps, where she turned around and waved to Heebie-Jeebie. He looked at her, confused. He seemed to want her to come along. She shouted, Don't forget to wear your rubbers. He smiled. I always do. After the car went up over the hill, Tessie suggested we go out for ice cream. I was the only taker. Terry followed Grandma Holda inside. Walt went out and he picked up a rake and started scratching at the dry patch of lifeless earth in front of our house. For the next few weeks, Grandma Holda became more talkative. She told stories about when she and Heebie-Jeebie were a young couple with such a big family. Sometimes Walt made appearances in these stories of hers. He seemed to be a different Walt than the one that I knew. I tried to imagine him as she remembered, but I couldn't see him as she did. In her stories, he was a cut-up, and he was daring. In one story, he got into a fist fight with his brother John. Before the fight was over, they broke her china closet and every piece of china that was in it. In another story, Walt and his brother Dutch accidentally knocked over a bucket of skunk fat into the house furnace, causing all the windows to be pulled open in the middle of winter. Then there was the time Grandma was dusting upstairs and she backed into the beak of his stuffed heron which she proceeded to toss out the window. Your father was a good boy, Woodsy, she said to me, using his nickname. She visited Heebie-Jeebie at the place that he was at. It was more of a hospital than anything. It was over at the Summit Park complex. When she returned from those visits, she was very quiet. I never saw her cry, but I felt her crying. She moved about the kitchen with a cup of coffee, sat at the table, and stared at the empty chair opposite her. Then one morning, she didn't get up. Tessie took me out back and told me that she was gone. I wanted to look through the window. I wanted to see in the bed where she was gone. But instead, Tessie walked me back through Uncle Dutchie's yard and up to Cousin Tom. He was playing with some toy dinosaurs on our old front porch. She went inside. She went to talk with Aunt Dot. Cousin Tommy, that's Tommy Tadpole, 
He was showing me the difference between a brontosaurus and a stegosaurus. I sat there staring at the two dinosaurs, but I kept thinking about the room down on First Street in the house where Grandma was gone. Then I saw a long black car with a door at its end cruise over Mountain Avenue and roll on down to First Street. Walt was the first person to visit heebie-jeebie after Grandma Holda was gone. Uncle Mal warned Walt to avoid the subject of Grandma being gone, as it might put a strain on old Pop, he said. But as Walt walked into the hospital room, heebie-jeebie was all ready for him. He demanded to know what had happened to Holda. Walt lied and said nothing at all had happened. Hebe swore at him, Don't go telling me stories, boy. So Walt admitted that she was gone. Heebie-jeebie contemplated this. He was quiet for a while, and then he looked at Walt. All my life, that woman has been just ahead of me at everything, and now this too. He told Walt that he planned to follow her on Tuesday night next at 9.30. He expected some visitors by 7 o'clock. He instructed Walt that I was to be the last visitor. Oh, Tessie fretted about this. She was concerned. All through supper on Tuesday evening, she was concerned. She twice suggested that we not go. Walt just shook his head. We were going. The family climbed into the car, all of us, and we rode quietly out of Hilburn. Tessie turned on the radio. Muffin requested a certain station number, but Tessie ignored this. She dialed up a station with the King sisters, pouring out my old Kentucky home. Muffin droned in protest. Tessie told her to hush causing Muffin to drone louder. Joan told Muffin to shut up, and Muffin droned louder again. Tessie now started to say to Joan, Do not say shut up. And that's when Terry chimed in, warning everyone that the cream corn she'd had earlier was about to make a reappearance. I sat there feeling a little tired, but satisfied that most everything was going to be all right. And the best part was that we were off to see heebie-jeebie, whom I fantasized was thinking of returning with us. Although I had spent my first days at a hospital, this visit was, for me, something of a premier event. Tessie held my hand as we walked down through the waxed halls, thick with antiseptic, that burned your eyes and stung your nose. The further into the ever-turning maze of hallways we walked, the heavier my steps became. We passed some ancient fellow folded into a metal wheelchair and drooling on himself. I looked quickly at his face. He looked at mine. All the other sounds were lost, and I felt I was falling inside of him. Tessie tugged me back, and we stepped aside for two uniformed nurses who were helping an old woman to walk. It looked as if she were learning this for the first time. They were encouraging her to take each step. She looked at me and smiled her gums pink and spotted. Again, Tessie tugged me back from falling away. Everywhere I looked, it seemed I could slip into some hidden cavern inside these people. I believed they might be hollow with long dark chambers waiting for a boy to fall into forever. Then we arrived at the right room. Inside there was a nurse checking on something, a few relatives talking quietly, and sitting upright in the bed, heebie-jeebie, in a clear, plastic tent. When he saw me, he pulled open the tent and pushed it back. The nurse tried to wrap it around him again, but he wouldn't have it. It looked as if he were camping out on his bed. Someone picked me up and set me up close to him. 
nothing smelled right. That, that thick, dusky odor of cigar, it, it was gone, lost in the stinging scent of ammonia and baby powder. Heebie-jeebie put his three-fingered hand on my shoulder, and he told everyone else to leave the room. Tessie told me they'd be right outside in the hall. After they were gone, I tried to look into Heebie-jeebie's face, but I was scared. It was very white, cleaner than I ever knew it to be. Then I noticed I noticed a container of strawberry ice cream melting its pink ooze down the side of the bed table. Heebie-jeebie leaned over and grabbed it. There was a single plastic spoon, which he offered to me. I sat very still. So he took the spoon, and with a shaking hand, he dipped it into the wet ice cream and poured a spoonful of ice cream to the floor. I laughed. Now I took my turn. I did the same thing. He laughed. Then he put the carton to his face and gulped some thick liquid. He handed me the box. I did the same, dripping it down the sides of my jaw and all over my shirt. As we neared the bottom of the carton, we both had enough, so the box was dropped to the floor with a satisfying slump sound. Heebie-jeebie then told me he was going away. I shook my head. He said he had to do this. He wanted to catch up with Holda Mula, who was now a beautiful young girl in the Ramapo of far, far away. He touched my head, and he said, I'll always be with you. You'll see and then he held his three-finger hand up to me. Know what this means? Heebie-jeebie, I whispered. But something else, too. What? He smiled, and in that moment he looked very young. His face seemed to glow and his eyes shined. I caught a hint of his good old stinky cigar breath. You'll find out. Find out what? He looked as though he could see right into me. Lots of things. You will find lots of things. Then he eased himself back into the open clear tent. He was tired and wanted to rest. I slid off the bed. There was a big puddle of strawberry ice cream at my feet. I started toward the door when I heard something, some little sucking of air sound. I looked back, and there I saw the old man, his three-fingered hand held out to me. He said, Eby. I raised my hand. Two middle fingers drawn in, and I said, Jeebie. And that was the last I saw him alive. Ah, speechless which is really a problem when you're doing a podcast. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll do a commercial now. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Jeez, Chuck. God. That's, uh, that's beautiful. That's what it is. It's well, hard, too. I have to ask, what did they use skunk fat for? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, of all things you to get collect. through all that story. I know. That's well, the piece. Yeah. That's <laughs> the one. I was very much moved by the whole thing, but that started at the very beginning. I'm like, wait, why would you collect skunk fat? Skunk fat. What's that for? A great water repellent for your boots. But then you walk around smelling of skunk, right? Which means you're not smelling of person. And when you're tracking animals, you're trying to void the person smell. 
I am so glad that was part of this story because it gave me just enough time to pull myself <laughs> just trying back to together again. Somewhere. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. Oh man! Wow. Well, oh this was a this was a stunning and a fitting end to a to a beautiful life, you know, and and uh, and but not not really an end, you know, in a way, uh, because you you remember him, so he's still here, you know. But uh, it's really. Very powerful. My goodness, my goodness. The whole thing, I mean, it's it's almost cinematic in the way that you describe it. It's I can see it. I can really see it. It's uh it's so important, you know, to remember these things. He this man understood the meaning of life at this point in in time. He wanted to be with his wife. There was no point. In, in remaining here, but he wanted to tell you in a proper way and, you know, to start the conversation with some ice cream. <laughs> man, oh, man. I'll tell you a little uh, thing about strawberry ice cream, which is sort of interesting, too. Um, I had strawberry ice cream for the first time in, um, in Boston with uh, Uncle Tom Casey, and uh, it was just delightful, this wonderful flavor. This was just, wow, pink thing that tastes good. And Tessie and I were visiting the Casey's, and we were on this little trolley car thing that he took me on because he knew I liked trains. And we had this, uh, this wonderful ice cream. The next time I encountered strawberry ice cream was in this story. Sometime after this, Tessie brings home a carton of you remember the Hershey's ice cream, white chocolate and strawberry, and there was like the white section, the chocolate section, the strawberry section. I avoided strawberry ice cream for years. For years, I avoided it. And I, didn't, I, I just knew I didn't like it. And, um, and this is how this story eventually gets written, because I'm 21 years old, and I'm in the strawberry place in Nyack, and uh, I'm with some other friends, and one of them is having a strawberry milkshake. And I'm looking at it, and I said, that looks good. And she said, well, have a sip. And I said, no, I, I don't like strawberry ice cream. And she said, you know what it tastes like? And I said, well, I, I, I must have known that sometime or another, because how else would I know I don't like it? And she said, ah, go on, you're being ridiculous, have a sip. So with the straw, I took a big sip of strawberry milkshake, and became overwhelmed with emotion and had no idea why. Mm. I just, this something clicked and I got all emotional and, uh, and she apologized. She didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> and I, I went back to Hilburn and I told Tessie this story. And she said, it was strawberry ice cream in your grandfather's hospital room mm. that the two of you threw on the floor. Yeah, yeah, there it is. And it, it's like, wow. And that came crashing back. Right, the whole, right, wow. right. And the flavor of it too, because we drank it together, you know. And 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 she said, I always figured that's why you didn't. She never told me that. <laughs> so it would have been years. nice, <laughs> but uh, but that was. But it, it connected, you know. And then, and uh, so well, yeah, taste and smell are known to be one of the most significant memory triggers, yeah. actually. Yeah, you know, that will take you back to a place that you thought you forgot about. Um, and music will do that too. I, yep. I was, you know, yep. my father, uh, there was a song, I can't remember the name, but, but he said, can you imagine, I can't listen to that song. Every time I hear that song, I literally, I get physically sick. I feel fear and I get sick. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, 
they were playing that song when my mother was laid out in her wake. He, she died when he was 14. Oh, mm. wow. And uh, he said, I just, I don't even like to think of the sound of it anymore. And wow. he, he loved music. He was, oh, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But, wow. It's imprinted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just connects that way. So the, the, the sign that he was making with the three fingered hand, of course, says anyone who knows about, you know, sign language or whatever, as I do, my wife has spent her whole life doing that. Um, is uh, I love you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh, very mm. powerful. And what what I distinctly remember is him telling me it, something special and then saying, you'll find out. And that's so typical of the character that he was. Yeah. You know, he could have just told me, but he's leaving me with something to go for, you know? Yeah. And the other interesting thing was he used to bel- belittle folks in the village when he waved to them. He said, now, what are you waving with a full set of fingers for? Making me feel bad. At least you could just hold a couple of them down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was getting them to say, I love you. <laughs> yeah. That's no, really something. Well, that, that sign, okay, when you hold up your index finger and your thumb, that's the letter L. Mm-hmm. When you hold up the uh, I, that's the letter I. You know, your pinky, that's mm-hmm. the letter I. And uh, U is this. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was this. Oh, so, uh, so you've got the whole thing yeah. all together. It's like there. I love yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Boy, talk about a gift. Yeah, I told that story some years ago, probably at camp some years ago, and uh, right at the beginning when I held up the hand, three kids from their background said, "I love you." Mm. Yeah, because they got it right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, were these the first two people? in your life that died that you remember growing up? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I went to, for some reason, not to grandma's funeral, but I did go to, to grandpa's funeral, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the logistics or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember, you know, he, he was in a coffin and, you know, this was up in the Ramapo cemetery and, and the coffin was lowered in the ground. This was new to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember watching that, and some well-meaning adult said, he's not really in there. And I said, where is he? And she said, the cabbage patch. Hmm. Which is very strange, because there's an old folk tale about there where babies come from the cabbage patch, mm-hmm. but somehow she put him, like he's going to return as a baby in the cabbage home, patch, yeah. reincarnated in the cabbage patch. And all that did was give me, speaking of tactile Experiences I could never eat cabbage. Cabbage. <laughs> right. There goes another food. <laughs> yeah. Another one down the drain. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. How do you feel when you read that? It was hard this time. Yeah. It was hard this. I practiced it a couple of times and it seemed fine. But uh, but you guys are here, you know, and so there's a sense of a, you know there's a larger sense and uh, and it was it was hard this time. Uh, I've told it without reading it, you know, like at camp or places. And I, I can tell I'm selectively dropping bits that are hard to say. Mm. And like I, I did it here. There's a piece in here about grandma's stories that I dropped. Yeah. I, you know, dropped a page worth because, uh, well, it was long, but also it's still emotional for me, you know. Sure, sure. Totally understand. I would have made a mess of it. I can tell you that <laughs> right now. That would be interesting. To li- Tune in next week as we hear Joe make a mess. <laughs> <laughs> 
What is next week, incidentally? What's the next story about? Well, this is kind of interesting, and it's an interesting way to end the uh, season one. Next week is called The Story of Ogres and Demons. It's a fable, but it's what I used to do, sort of like being a dog under the table. It's what I used to do to figure out how do things work. And I would kind of create, out of the people who were really in the world, stories about them. And it's one of those. Okay, great. This is, uh, for those of you who got a little choked up like I did and and, uh, are wondering how you're going to think about this. And I mean, let me leave you with a little bit of Zen. Okay. Um, there's a, there's an old saying that I think is really apropos right now. And it's simply this, that if you die before you die, then you'll never really die. Think about that. If you don't meditate, start now. And wow. Think about that one. See you next week. Okay. Scotty, you said something a while back about discovering scribbled notes in an old book, and that resonated with me. Since I buy most of my books secondhand, I often find little notes and areas underlined in the text, and it kind of puts me in touch with a former reader. Yeah, and I don't mind that. In fact, I think it's a treasure when you find where somebody was so moved or annoyed that they made a few notes or comments Hmm. on the page. You know, we all have teachers in our families, and I guess we all have heard it before that kids are hard on books. But I got to tell you, reading is an interactive process, and making notes and underlining is a part of that. I imagine they need to look through used books they receive at the Montgomery Book Exchange, you know, to clean them up some. Oh, sure. But honestly, I, I think that's the lore of buying a used book. And didn't you tell me that the owners, Walter and Claire, have opened a second location in Montgomery called the Children's Chapter for younger kids? Yeah, yeah. It's over on 8 Factory Street in Montgomery. And uh, it's open Thursday through Saturday, 10 to 4. And, And they have a reading garden there for story time. Check it out on their website. So, Chuck, are we going to take Scott to the Montgomery Book Exchange? Not today. It's Monday, only day of the week they're closed. we got to check out the website for the hours or call 845-764-1787. Okay, but sooner or later, Scott, you're going. You've been listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning at 9 a.m., so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.